Welcome to another session of our podcasts on music and the brain. I'm Steve Mencher for the Library of Congress, and today I'm joined by Tofik Ben Amor, who's about to give a lecture entitled States of Mind, Music in Islamic Sufi Ritual. Dr. Ben Amor is Gordon Gray Jr. Senior Lecturer in Arabic Studies at Columbia University. And I'd like to start by not talking about the subject of what you do, but I'd like to hear a little bit about you. Where were you born? I was born in uh, Tunis, Tunisia, in oh. North Africa. All right. And, and what was your family situation there? My father is a musician. He played uh, a two-sided drum that you kind of hang on your neck and beat on with two sticks, one on each side. He used to sing as well. And he kind of floated sort of in and out of profane and sacred music. Mm. And he sort of did both and a bunch of other jobs. And so when he would come back home, he would just, you know, eat quickly and then pick up his drums and go somewhere. And the the music was part of the setting, really. You didn't have to try hard, you know, to go to a concert hall to hear it. It was uh, still within that era where actually music is sort of very functional and played within cultural settings and in many spontaneous ways. So the idea of actually performances, etc., you know, would become the phenomenon of later years. Yeah. How did you end up in the United States? Oh, a lot of, uh, lot of reasons. You know, my first reason is uh, uh, when I was in Tunisia, I was working with the Peace Corps. I taught Arabic to a huge number of them for a number of years. You taught Arabic to folks to, who were going into uh, Africa, North Africa? Into or? North Africa and into Tunisia as Peace Corps volunteers. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, they had stays of two years and they were doing all sorts of uh, different things. And that's how my questions about America started in my mind. And after a while, I felt that uh, I needed to see it for myself, you know, as opposed to hearing about it, you know, for... Uh, from uh, all of these really dear friends of mine. And I got a Fulbright to come and actually work on my uh, dissertation, and that was in 1988. So that's when I came to the U.S. first. Um, Are you yourself then a a Sufi, and is that something that's inherited, or is that something that you choose to do? Actually, you can do both, and it's part of the debates, the many debates that there are, you know, within um, the Sufi tradition, you know, people are born into the families, but does that mean that you actually practice or, you know, end up being a Sufi? And who's a Sufi? And who decides actually who's a Sufi? It's a very uh, personal thing. Uh, And I think that's the uh, one of the aspects about it that I really like. I grew in the context, you know, I have done, you know, a few of the practices and uh, all sorts of things. Um, am I still one or not? Uh, I am. It, it never goes away. So Maybe I better ask, what is a Sufi? A Sufi is, is a Muslim who adheres to the mystical branch of the religion. It doesn't mean that you don't actually practice all the tenets of, of Islam. You do. You know, you fast, you pray, you don't drink, you do all the things that, you know, the regular Muslims do. But then on top of that, you hold these beliefs that you can uh, experience God and truth directly and wholly. And so in order for you to do that, you have to actually train yourself to be able to do that through ritual, through practice, through many years of, um, you know, some ego smashing. 
you know, at a certain point, we, we believe that when the ego is totally done with, then you can actually be in unity with, with the universe, with the greater being, with truth. And that's when you lose yourself completely into the totality of being, of, of the universe itself. So, wow. so it's sounding to me a little bit like Zen Buddhism, as, as you It is. It. It's like, you know, it's, it's mysticism is so similar in so many ways. I mean, uh, what the Sufi calls fana, which is to lose oneself in truth or in God, is, is nirvana for somebody or, you know. Uh, Kabbalah, you know, the, the whole Jewish tradition is very close to this. So I think the mystics are the same, but where they start from is, is a different place. And how they get where they get is different. Uh, it's, not very, it's, it's not the same path. Okay, we'll talk more about that yeah, in a minute. Yeah. But I, I saw that you had participated in a seminar on music and the brain mm -hmm. last spring with uh, my friend Jim Anderson, uh, yeah. who I used to work yeah, with many yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the most surprising thing you learned taking part in that discussion? I think one of the most surprising things to me, uh, you know, other than the amazing people who are there, actually, Jim was telling me details that I've wanted to know for many, many years, you know, like I was kind of blue made. And why is it such a great recording? It's an amazing recording. Which I'm talking recording about is that? Kind of blue. Ah. You know, uh, and, and then he started talking about the session and then I asked him other questions later, you know, because it doesn't happen that often that you actually have that perfect you know, thing happening. And uh, by perfect, I don't mean perfect, that it's clean. I mean, it's real music, it, you know, with uh, all of it. What I learned that day was how to reconcile the many different ways, actually, of looking at the role of music within culture, within human history. I felt that the gap was really huge, you know, in between us as participants. And I really felt that the question came up over and over of, what is the role of music really in our evolution and survival? And, you know, to me, it was always an obvious thing. You know, what do you mean? What does music do in our lives? It does everything. Uh, it makes us happy. It makes us sad. It, it terrorizes our enemies. You know, when we go to fight, uh, we communicate with music. We court with music. We do lots of things with music. So why isn't music as important as drinking water or eating bread? I think I realized a bit of the, that gulf, and I think since then I've been thinking a little bit about what it is that happened that created this kind of rupture a little bit. People up to 150 years ago were talking about, uh, you know, music in, in therapy, how to use music, you know, to cure um, all sorts of ailments, you know, uh, psychological diseases, all sorts of things. And now all of a sudden we're back to, to zero and we're saying... You know, we want to actually study the effects, uh, you know, music on, on, on the neurons, on the, you know, the brain and, and how many chemicals are, you know, secreted at a, you know, listening to a certain type of music, etc. And it feels to me that it's sort of a backward way of going about it. It's something that you can't reproduce. It's very hard to reproduce. Somebody who gets into that sense of bliss uh, or enchantment, or trance, or whatever you want to call it today, I'll be talking about that, you know, um, in more detail. But it's not something that you could put in the lab and, you know, and have all the conditions, you know, that are favorable to induce, you know, this person to live the experience. It's it's very different than that. It's, it's so embedded in so many other things, and sometimes it doesn't happen. And most importantly, uh, it has a, a condition. The first condition is you have to believe you know, in order for it to happen. So, 
you know, with all of that cut out, I felt that I was there in that conversation, you know, um, almost uh, awed, you know, by by the gap and questioning myself of what had happened in these 150 years to humanity and to a point where music is so estranged from us now uh, mm. that we have to actually ask those questions. Nobody asked them 150 years ago. I was taken. I mean, uh, Rousseau back all the way to Greek philosophers. Everybody is talking about the effects of music. No one doubted the effects. They wanted to understand how it had that effect. So... Good. Let, let's yeah. dive into that a little bit. I know when we mm. first started, to, when, when you wrote back and, and we started to say, well, you know, what were the kinds of things we would talk about? You said, well, you wanted to think a little bit about a critique of, of looking at music and critique of Darwinian, utilitarian and empirical approaches. And it made me think of some of the things we've talked about mm-hmm. already in this podcast. Uh, let's start with Darwin. You know, not long ago we had a guest on the podcast who took probably what you might call a Darwinian approach. Mm-hmm. So the way he described it, he said, "Well, he said genes for music and dancing, for example, might have helped some tribes to dance better and sing better, and maybe they would be more coordinated when it came time to go hunting." or mm-hmm. when it came time to go fighting. So he mm-hmm. said, those genes were then favored, and the next generation had better music genes. And that, I guess, would be a Darwinian approach. Now, is that ridiculous, or is that something... It's you- not. It really <laughs> isn't, no. I mean, it, it's really looking at, at one aspect of, of music and dance. Okay. And that's the point that I'm trying to make. Look, I'm, I'm not against empiricism or Darwinism or, or a way of looking at music, you know, and, um, even a utilitarian way of looking at it. I think that it doesn't uh, provide us with answers as to how does music exactly induce altered states of mind. And, you know, we could get into the genetics, we could get into the lab, we could, you know, dismiss music altogether because the utilitarian approach would tell you, you know, what's the use of music? I mean, at least the person you, you talked to was saying that music was important you know, in human survival. I've heard other people who were who would say it wasn't even, you know, it's a, it's a luxury. It's part of culture. It's one of the things that we didn't develop until we had enough food and enough figured out, you know, how not to be eaten, you know, by some carnivore, or, you know, on the Serengeti Plains. I don't know what constitutes music, and I don't know how we should define it and see it, because I see it as a much wider thing than that. It's a collection of sounds. It's somebody who's actually, you know, chipping at a stone, you know, to make the little arrow, you know, with which they're going to go and hunt, you know, in a way is is actually creating sound. Um, how do people relate to that? I don't know how it evolved, but I would hate to think that music is not crucial, that aesthetics in general are not really crucial to human being and to culture. In, in terms of the utilitarian, you know, I have... Uh, my own pet peeves in a sense that we think, well, music is, instead of listening to music or instead of listening to the feeling uh, of music, sometimes we talk about music because it's good for us. You know, Mm -hmm. music is good because it uh, brings people together in religion or it serves a particular role in in films to make our emotions come to the surface or Mm -hmm. might soothe a child. Or we talked about inciting an army. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I want to stop people with those arguments and say, well, let's, you know, let's listen, let's feel, let, let's do all of those things. Then we can talk about roles that music might play mm-hmm. and things it might do. But that's not the first thing we should talk about. 
Right. I agree with you. I agree that, you know, the, the social role is obviously very important. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, most of music is very communal. I mean, the only time that it's not communal is when you're singing by yourself in the shower or, you know, practicing the piano, uh, you know, somewhere. And even when you're singing in the shower or practicing the piano, at least practicing the piano, we know you're practicing in order to use it, to have people listen to it, you know, be it your teacher, your an audience or, or somebody. It's, it's actually one of the things that is so communal and yet so individual. Uh, and I think that's such a wonderful thing about music, uh, in a sense. We could go, you and I, to, to a concert and sit there together and experience it together uh, because it's meant to be the musician and us listening to the, to the musician and interacting with them. But, but we could have so many different feelings and so many different emotions. Each one of us will leave probably the, the concert you know, with, with different feelings or different ideas you know, about what it was. So I, I think we've been a bit divorced from that emotional link that we do have, uh, you know, with music, the, the, even though, you know, we, we say it, we say it, it makes us sad or it makes us happy or why is this, this is such sad music. It has healing properties. It really has uh, this incredible effective, um, you know, uh, array of properties that can actually lift us up, uh, that can actually uh, heal us, you know, uh, psychologically and, and even physically. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's known. It's the link that's the problem. Uh, and I think that there used to be much more of a link in the past of what music did. I mean, old theories talked about music not just as sound or scores or Tempos, they related modes to temperaments, you know, to the elements, to the zodiac signs, to... And so actually when you go learn the music, you learn these properties with it. Uh, you have to actually learn that this mode does this. You know, Aristotle was basically saying, oh, the Phrygian mode, you know, is actually a, a very good mode for, for, for happiness. You know, that was basically, and, and he was not inventing anything. There were these theories that were transmitted as part of learning music. I don't think uh, the folks at Juilliard are doing that right now. Nobody's talking about temperaments. You know, nobody's talking about how this music is really related to, to moods and to the body and to the zodiac signs and what it affects are and, you know, on healing, etc. Now, you have done a lot of scholarly work, I understand, you know, kind of saying not only Aristotle said these things, but a lot of Arab scholars and philosophers were there absolutely. at the same time or earlier absolutely, saying similar absolutely. things. The Indian tradition has the same thing. Mm -hmm. The Persian tradition, when you tackle the dust gods, seen in the same exact way. And the Indian tradition, actually, I know more about the North than the South, unfortunately. Uh, the South has a very rich Carnatic tradition of music that... I wish I knew more about. I hope I, I will. But for the North part, uh, the Hindustani uh, system still has kept, you know, uh, the properties of rags in terms of playing them in the morning or playing them at night and playing, you know, and performing them in a certain way. Some of them are good for singing. Some of them are not good for singing. Some of them are appropriate for certain flute uh, instruments like the bansuri or, and some aren't. Uh, Arabs used to uh, play the hot modes in the evening and the cold modes in, in the day. You know, cold modes cool you down and hot modes warm you up. And so you have to actually think about the temperature, etc. 
But if you went to the conservatoires today uh, where Arab music is being taught and you uh, tell people what's a cold mode and what's a hot mode, they wouldn't know because mm. of the rupture that I was trying to tell you about. Sure. So, yeah. Wow. Now, I have been looking in, into YouTube and seen some of the, the rituals that you've been talking about. The zikr, how do you say? Yeah, zikr or zikr, yeah. Some people say zikr or zikr. They say sama' as uh -huh. well, which is another... There are so many names for the same thing. And hundreds of thousands of people have viewed some of these videos. And, and to me, I, I see people sort of dancing around in a circle and jumping and singing. Help me see some more things. What, what's going on in some of these things? Uh, the uh, Vikr basically is not all about music. It's actually a, a, a very well-planned um, uh, series of, of activities, you know, uh, and practices that, that you do. It varies a little bit according to the Sufi order and according to the country, etc. But it contains prayers, it contains, you know, form, other forms of chanting, reciting the Qur'an, readings, etc., and music and dance and movement. And it depends, you know, sometimes you see uh, frame drums being played, sometimes no drums at all, sometimes other instruments are played. And, and all of this is because of the different schools and different ways of thinking about this. Uh, some schools allow for certain instruments and not for others. Some schools don't allow for instruments whatsoever. Uh, some schools actually rely on clapping on and breathing, you know, to create the rhythmic uh, pattern. Uh, generally, these gatherings are, are very long. When I was young and I used to go to them, at least in my particular order, they used to happen on a Thursday night. And so they would start actually after the sundown and then they go on until you know, the, the next day at dawn, uh, you know, with breaks and they bring the food and people eat. And so there's a lot that goes on into this. But basically the idea is if you go through this very long cycle of practices that include music in order for you to reach a heightened point where uh, Sufis talk about shedding the cloak or they talk about uh, lifting the curtain of the senses, and then all of a sudden you, you're one with truth. You know, the, the problem is there's amnesia after that, after you come back. And so uh, you see these people, when you see them, you see them in trance. And it's amazing what they can do. I mean, some of the stuff is completely graphic, like what they do to their bodies and, you know, um, stuff that's hard to believe. But when they come back from the trance, uh, you know, they cannot remember you know, what they went through. It's, a, it's as if they lived the experience, you know, at, uh, on another side. Do you mean just sort of a, I mean, is this the kind of thing where they would injure themselves? They or would do... cut themselves, they would injure themselves, mm -hmm. they would stick daggers in their heads, they would, I mean, they would do things, and I have some videos I'm not going to show today, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, you know, I'll talk about some of these sure. practices. But this would be rare. Mostly w w the, the, the injury, the, the self-flagellation. The self-flagellation. There's a lot that gets done. And it depends on the which order is doing it and, and, and which country. And, mm -hmm. and even the Sufis sometimes look down upon these things. They think, you know, these guys are charlatans. You know, this is not really Sufism or spirituality. But we know fakirs who lie down on glass or walk on fire and... We, we know about this. The, the problem is we can't explain it. And the other complications is that a lot of these people who go through these trances, you know, uh, cannot remember, you know, what they went through. And therefore, it, it, it is a communal experience in which playing the music together and chanting together 
gets you as an individual to that stage where you lift the veil of the senses and experience the unity of, of the universe as, as a whole uh, and a unity with God. But then it's so individual because not everybody goes onto that trance. Certain people do at different points, you know, within the evening. And trances last for different, you know, times. You know, sometimes it's really short, sometimes it's really long. And you have to really take care of the person who gets into a trance because they can hurt themselves. Uh, the music has to go on because if you interrupt the music, then from heat, they get really cold. And then, you know, it might be a shock in coming back, you know, to to this world. And so it's it's a very individual experience. Uh, it's it's like death. You know, we we uh, accept that there's a resurrection after that. You know, we, we all know about it. We all are going to experience it. And yet we experience it so individually. Um, so let, let me interrupt mm-hmm. you, though, to, to ask then as a, as a scholar, as a Sufi, as a person, you know, what is most interesting to you about this? I'm fascinated, but it's, it's a very diffuse fascination. But, but you're someone who knows about this. What's the most interesting thing about this the to you? The most interesting thing to me about mysticism is that it offers other ways of, of seeing, you know, other ways of perceiving uh, our life, you know, and the world. And I'm not saying it, it's the way or it's a better way, but it's another way. And, you know, uh, there are lots of Sufis who live in so many different ways. And I don't think I want to create a bit of a conflict in between, you know, the, the scientist, the empiricist, and the Sufi, because I don't want to create that. Uh, the truth is a lot of the Sufis were mathematicians, you know, doctors and all of these things, but they were Sufis too. Uh, and I don't see the contradiction between the two. So it's music and dance, and that's part of what brings them through into this spiritual realm, into and this mystical realm. Right, and music is, is, is only a tool. It's only a means, you know, to all of this, which actually raises other questions, you know, I'll probably talk about in the lecture today. Wow. Before I let you go, I want to ask a little bit about uh, the whirling dervishes who mm. I saw in Cairo uh, in the old city there. Is this another kind of Sufi ritual, or are these folks... Uh... It is the same dhikr. It depends on which setting you've seen uh-huh. it, you know. A lot of it is, like, really shows now. And uh, I think we have to uh, distinguish between performance and, and ritual. And I'm not saying that per- there's no place for a performance. I think there is, as long as performance doesn't pretend that it's ritual, because it's not. Did you see where, where the guys actually in, in, in colored uh, robes... They yes. were colored. Yes. And, and, and when they whirled, did they lift their robes they up? They went almost up to the top of their it's, heads. It's and a then folkloric uh, rich, you know, Egypt, show. Egyptian invention. Tourist. Of, <laughs> of, of, you know, well, now I'm really disappointed. Of, of whirling. <laughs> I actually don't like the word whirling. I, uh, I, okay. I generally go for turning or something like that. Well, tell me what the real thing is. Uh, it, it's so hard to come by now, but it's actually part of the Maulawi um, Sufi order. It's one of the main Sufi orders uh, of Maulana Jalaluddin Rumi, and everybody knows Rumi. I'm so glad he's such a popular poet. Uh, I think his books were like uh, beating all, all other masterpieces of literature or whatever recently. He's the founder of, of this order, and this order actually is found in many, many countries, you know, including uh, Turkey is the main place for it, even though uh, Jalaluddin Rumi is Persian, you know, and his poetry is in Persian. He spent a lot of time in Qom, you know, in Turkey, and so 
the Maulawis have uh, this dance that we know as the whirling dervishes. Um, it's really um, full, full of symbolism uh, in so many different ways. It's one of the things I will be talking about today uh, a little bit, that uh, the, the turning, the, the movements, the color of the robes, uh, you know, the, the way they progress and all of that actually has, is very symbolic. Just to give you an, an example, not to go through all of this, it's a long uh, ceremony. But as they come in, uh, on top of the white that they wear, and they wear, uh, you know, a darker cloak, uh, black or gray. And one of the first things they do when they stand and the sheikh is there uh, is they shed it. It's it's the act of shedding your other life and entering another. Uh, and and the symbolism continues with every single thing that they do. So. Sure. Well, yeah. I look forward to seeing more of that, and I look forward to hearing more about you and your fascinating work. Uh, this has been one of our podcasts on music and the brain from the Library of Congress. I've been talking to Tofik Ben Amor. I'm Steve Mencher, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. <laughs>